Well, hello, church. It is good to be together today. My name's Ethan. If you're a guest with us, glad you're here. Uh, we're continuing our series, Relationships. And we're talking in this series about the shifts we need to make in our lives. Like when you're on a bike and you're coasting down the hill and suddenly you've got to climb. And if you don't shift gears, you're going to wreck the bike. And we've been talking about the kind of shifts we need to make in our relationships. I will let you know that uh, this series has sort of been building uh, and will build throughout the series and the previous two messages are really essential to understanding today's message. I'll try to at the appropriate points reference to them but if you missed them and today's message is confusing to you I would really challenge you to go back and listen to them because I think they'll help you understand what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the shift we need to make when we encounter the calling of God for our lives. When God calls us to a way of life, to holiness, to self-sacrifice, to sexual purity, to gentleness, to forgiveness, we have a natural response to the calling of God. And I want us to consider a shift. We need this shift because to encounter the call of God is very, very hard. Without the grace of Christ, we would be crushed by the calling of a holy God. And I worry, in fact, that actually some of you might feel crushed today. That if perhaps you are not anchored deeply enough in the grace of God, if you don't recognize fully that you stand on grace, not on the record of your own righteousness, that you may be crushed by today's message. And I don't want that for you. In fact, I know that already this series has been hard for some as we've talked about what our relationships should look like. Uh, some of us have seen the contrast between the relationships we have and the call of God, and that has been crushing to you. Somebody said, you know, Ethan, I tried, but, but it takes two in a relationship, and they, they didn't try at all, and the relationship broke, and, and I know that. I know that. You, you can't be responsible for somebody else's behavior. So as we start today, I just want to pray for you, and I, my prayer is that you would stay anchored in grace throughout our message today. Let me pray for you. God, we need to be blessed right now with a deepening awareness of your grace for us. For we are quick to forget and quick to measure ourselves by our own behavior. And when we measure ourselves in that way, we fall short of your calling and we are crushed. So in this moment, in this place, remind us of the grace of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question we're asking together today is this. How should we respond when we encounter the moral call of God on our lives. And while the ideas we'll explore apply to that question generally, we'll be looking in particular about the calling of God for Christian sexual ethics. And, and talking about sexual ethics is really, really challenging. Uh, I want to acknowledge that one of the reasons it's hard is that there is disagreement in the church today about Christian sexual ethics. This has not always been the case, but it is today, and to pretend like there isn't disagreement would be dishonest. 
The simple reality is that there are Christians whom I love and respect that disagree with me on how I read the Bible on Christian sexual ethics. I, of course, that means I disagree with them about how they read the Bible. But the good news is I know that we are both saved by grace. Neither one of us is saved by being right. We are saved by trusting in Jesus. And this is why we're going to need the shift we talked about two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we looked at Romans 14, and we learned that when you disagree, you need to shift from a posture of conflict to a posture of curious conversation. And I will just say, if, if maybe you find yourself in disagreement with what I'm teaching today, I hope that you'll make that shift, and I will too. We'll, we'll talk about it, you know. But even though I'm aware of disagreement, my responsibility as a pastor requires that the only thing I can do is teach what I see in God's Word, as much as I respect those who may disagree with me. A second reason that this conversation about Christian sexual ethics is so difficult is that so many of us have fallen short of the calling of God in this area. As we look at what God calls us to, what we're going to discover is Almost all of us have in one way or another walked a different route with our lives, at least for some time. That will require us to remember the shift we talked about last week. Because of the grace of Jesus, our experience of God's will and wisdom shifts from condemnation to calling. You see, it is the grace of Jesus that allows me to say, I acknowledge God's calling. I acknowledge that I have fallen short. But now by grace, I want to try again to live obediently to the calling of God. You do not need to worry that we will drift back into legalism today. That's not going to happen today. You are saved by grace Your status with God is guaranteed by Jesus, not the stack of your actions, whether good or bad. I will use the word calling to describe God's will and wisdom, and I'm using that word on purpose because God's will and wisdom for your life is no longer the standard by which you are judged. That is not the function of God's will and wisdom. It is no longer the standard of judgment. The only standard of judgment is, are you trusting in Christ or are you not? There is no judgment in this room today. Judgment was taken care of on the cross. And so every time throughout this sermon that you hear me use the word calling, let it remind you there is today no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A third reason that talking about Christian sexual ethics is very challenging is because of the radical contrast between the calling of God's word and the pattern we see in the world. It's just completely different. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this about Christian sexual ethics. He says that Christian sexual ethics is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that either Christianity is wrong, or the sexual instinct, as we now know it, has gone completely wrong. And he wrote that in 1940. 
Already in 1940, he could observe that the, the, the pattern, the natural pattern of our sexuality and the calling of God were completely different. Currently, the, the suggestion of our culture is that there should be almost no boundaries around sexual expression. Um, maybe we would say as long as there is consent and everybody's an adult, just follow your desires. Your desires are good and trustworthy, so you should trust them and follow them. And we know where this idea came from sociologically, right? It arose in the middle of the last century in a social experience that we now call the sexual revolution. And I will just say, I have some fundamental sympathy for the sexual revolution, right? Because if you had looked around the world in the late 50s and early 60s, it's not like everything was perfect. Lots of marriages were bad and people were being abandoned. And it was, the world was, a, was not a perfect place. And so it makes sense to me that somebody would have thought, I think the thing that's wrong with the world is all these sexually uptight people. And if we just followed our desires, everything would get better. I get the argument. But if that was the logic then now, 60 years later, I think we can look around and we can see what that experiment produced. There is not less rape. There is more rape. There is not less abuse. There is more abuse. There are not happier marriages. There are worse marriages. There are not more children being raised by loving parents. There are fewer children being raised by loving parents. Uh, any measure you could have picked that you would have thought maybe the se- even even just the, the measure of are people more or less sexually satisfied when they follow their desires they're less sexually satisfied so as hard as it will be and it will be very hard i actually think it's a good time culturally to reconsider the calling of god and ask is it possible that the boundaries god gave us were actually meant for our flourishing They were meant for good and not for harm. Finally, I will say the other reason this conversation is so hard is because of the legacy of the cruelty of the church. And I do think we have to admit that the church has a multi-century. We didn't start this problem. The church has a multi-century record of being cruel to people who live their lives outside the calling of God for Christian sexual ethics. My grandfather was a minister his whole life, and near the end of his life, um, he found himself very focused on his regrets, the things he thought he'd done wrong in life. And so I often sat with him, and he would talk about his regrets. And his list was pretty short, four or five things that he really regretted. But one of the four or five things on his list of regrets was he regretted how cruel the church had been to divorced persons early in his ministry in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He just, he just, and and of course, not just the church generally, but he himself, he felt like he had been cruel to divorced people in his church. He thought that's what he was supposed to do. In my life, I have watched the church be cruel to people who experience same-sex attraction. I have to watch the church be dismissive to those who experience sexual assault or sexual abuse. And I have watched the church be flippant 
about the various ways we struggle with sexual identity and sexual ethics. And I'm so sorry for that legacy of cruelty. And if you have been harmed by that, I'm sorry for that. And I pray for your healing. And you can see how given that legacy of cruelty, it would be easy to say, you know, maybe we should just shut our mouths about sexual ethics for 50 years to make up for how mean we've been the last 50 years. I'm actually, I get that argument. It may even be that because of that legacy of cruelty, that no matter what I say and no matter what I read from God's word, you will hear it as cruelty even when it isn't. And with all those challenges, the challenge of our own failure and the challenge of the cruelty of the church, the challenge of disagreement in the church, you might wonder, why do we even talk about it? Why even bring up Christian sexual ethics? It wasn't on my list of things I really wanted to preach on. Well, I'll just tell you, for me, there is only one reason to bring it up. And that's because I believe that the wisdom of God is given to us for our blessing. That's what I believe. Our obedience doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. We don't talk about obedience for the purposes of salvation. Our obedience doesn't restore us to God. Jesus does that. We don't talk about obedience for that reason. But I believe God loves us. And God's wisdom is for our good. And this actually is the shift that we're going to learn today. When you encounter the calling of God on your life, shift your attention from burden to blessing. Now, to be clear, let's not pretend that the calling of God has no burden, right? Jesus said, if you follow me, it's going to feel like you're picking up a cross every single day. Paul Paul said, if you obey Jesus, it's going to feel like you have laid your life down as a living sacrifice. So absolutely, there is a burden to following the calling of God. And if there's a burden, why would you do it? Well, you would do it because you'd shifted your attention from the burden to the blessing. And what is the blessing? Well, for starters, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That obeying God is an act of worship. So just direct obedience to God, even when it's hard, even when it feels painful, gives glory to God. It's a way we say, thank you, God, for saving me. I obey you as an expression of gratitude. The Bible also teaches that obedience to God reorients our life from the temporary to the eternal John writes in his first letter, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's part of the blessing. When we orient our life toward the call of God, we are orienting our life toward what is eternal. Finally, and this is sort of the most fun one, Jesus actually says that obeying him leads to a fullness of life that disobedience misses. He says, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. 
And whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The calling of God is so that we might have a full life. So in whatever area you are facing the calling of God and all you can see is the burden, I would encourage you to make a shift. When you encounter the calling of God in your life, shift from focusing on the burden to looking for the blessing. Maybe you're facing the call of God in the area of generosity. You're like, wow, hey, that feels like a burden. Or the calling of God to forgiveness of your enemies. Hey, that feels like a burden, God. Or the call to endurance and hope in the midst of suffering. And you're like, God, this is a burden. But I wonder what you could see if you could shift your attention and seek God's will and wisdom. And remember, what did we learn about the will and wisdom of God? Because of the grace of Jesus, our experience of God's will and wisdom shifts from condemnation to calling. It is not the standard of judgment. It is the calling to a good and holy life. And then when you encounter God's will and wisdom as calling, when you encounter the calling of God in your life, shift your attention from burden to blessing. Now, as practice for this, let's consider the calling of God in the area of Christian sexual ethics. This is certainly an area where most of us, basically all of us, will first hear the calling of God as a burden. And it will take discipline to shift our perspective to see where the blessing might be. Now, we don't have time for an exhaustive study of every scripture throughout the Bible that, that can help us clarify the path, the calling of God for Christian sexual ethics. But as you'll see from the verses we'll look at, you can summarize the call in this way. As best I can tell, God's word teaches that the path of blessing to which we are all invited is to radically discipline our sexual desires. So that we are, in fact, not led by our sexual desire, but we are in control of our sexual desire. This path of radical discipline has traditionally been called chastity, meaning that all people are called by God to discipline their desires into God-honoring and celibate singleness or into permanent monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. We see this taught in texts like Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed there. And then some of the Pharisees came to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. We see this same calling articulated in uh, some of the letters. For example, this is from 1 Corinthians. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, the Corinthian church had heard Paul teach that they were no longer under the law, but under grace, just like we talked about last week. But they misunderstood. They heard him say that the will and wisdom of God is no longer condemnation, but they did not hear him say that there remains a calling to a way of life. And so Paul speaks to that issue. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, God will destroy them both, as if it doesn't matter what you do with your bodies. But the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We could look at many more texts. There are texts that offer a warning, right, about what not to do. And there are more texts that offer encouragement about what we are to do with our relationships. But they all affirm this basic biblical principle, that mutual sexual expression belongs in a permanent monogamous marriage between a man and a woman, and outside of that context, we are all called to abstinence. Jesus says that even to indulge our lusts, such as by viewing pornography, is a violation of this calling. Now, I know that some that are listening to me now and others that I love and respect disagree with some of the biblical conclusions I just outlined. Uh, to you who disagree, I would encourage you to remember what we learned two weeks ago. When we disagree, we shift from a posture of conflict to conversation. And I would just say, I am open to conversation. If you want to you know, call me and set up a meeting and say, I disagree with how you interpreted that, you are going to find me loving and patient There will be no word of condemnation on my lips, for there is no condemnation for those who are trusting in Christ Jesus. This is the bedrock of our faith. There's no condemnation for those who are trusting in Jesus. And I will not condemn or reject, either from this pulpit or in my personal life, those with whom I disagree. I love you. And I trust that you are a beloved child of God, and we are saved by the love and grace of Christ, not because we're right about everything. Again, go back and look at what we said about Romans 14 two weeks ago. But even though I know some that I love who disagree with me, when I study the text and I ask the text to direct me in the calling of God, the wisdom of God through Christ, which does not condemn, remember, there is no condemnation, but it does call us to a way of life. The wisdom that I find in God's word is this, that we should discipline our desires 
into God-honoring singleness, which is celibate, or into permanent monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. And if we're honest for one second about that calling, we're going to observe a couple things. Number one, that is a narrow and countercultural path. And number two, it's really, really hard. In fact, my guess is if you're hearing this for the first time, maybe you've never heard a Christian explain that this is the way God calls us to exercise our sexuality, my guess is it sort of sounds shocking because it's just so different. You might even be thinking, really? Do people actually live that way? Well, yes, people do, but I'm sympathetic. It's very different than the way of our world. I think this might be why the God so frequently in Scripture reminds us that God is patient. Again, God, God reminds God because to turn from the patterns of our world to the patterns described here are so different and would be so hard, and God is so gracious. And secondly, I do want to acknowledge this is a very, very hard path. That's probably why so many of us haven't followed this path. And again, I want to be as tender as possible. I know that almost everybody in this room has in one way or another followed a path that's different than what's described here. You know? Everybody I know experiences this call to Christian sexual ethics as a burden. I know that. I experience this call as a burden. And I recognize that as someone who married young and has stayed married, whatever burden I feel is the least of all the burdens. And many of you experience this text as a greater burden even than what I have borne. And maybe that's your thought even right now. Easy for you to say, Ethan, this is the call of God, you know. Maybe you think that if only I knew the burden you face in trying to obey this call, that I wouldn't even share it with you. I would just kind of abandon the call. And I do see your point. My life of following Jesus includes many times when I heard the call of God and the burden seemed too great, and so I ignored God's call on my life. I've done that too. I, I, I can't let myself forget um, a premeditated lie I told when I was 19. I planned out the lie for two days. And even while I was planning the lie, I was wrestling with God. And I knew God needed me to tell the truth. God called me to tell the truth. God commanded me to tell the truth. But ultimately, the burden... The suffering I would have undergone if I'd told the truth was more than I could bear. And so I lied. It seared my soul. I told that lie a dozen more times over the next four years. It got easier every time I lied. It got easier. And when I finally repented of that lie and told the truth to the people I'd been lying to, it nearly broke my will. The burden was so great. I wish there had been somebody that I had confided in who could have helped me shift my attention. Because in every area of Christian ethics, whether it's honesty or sexual ethics, 
when you encounter the call of God, if you will just shift your attention from the burden to the blessing, the motivation and the spiritual power to obey the call of God is there. And that's what I want you to hear. In whatever area you're struggling with the call of God, the blessing of obedience outweighs the burden. What, what is the blessing? Well, we already said, right? It, it, it starts with obeying God expresses worship to God. It gives glory and gratitude to God for saving you. Obeying God anchors your life in what is eternal instead of what is passing away. And in the mercy of God, Jesus says that obeying him actually leads to a life of fullness and joy in a way that disobedience doesn't. To help us see how this works uh, in the arena of sexual ethics, I want to consider two aspects of this calling uh, and see if together we can shift our attention from the burden to the blessing. I want to talk a little bit about permanence and abstinence. The calling of God, the will and wisdom of God, is that marriage should be permanent and that outside of marriage we should abstain from all sex. Now, to speak about the permanence of marriage with you today is very, very difficult because so many of us already live our lives having experienced the impermanence of marriage. So many of us wished for a marriage to be permanent, and it wasn't. And so we experience the conversation about permanence of marriage with great grief or perhaps profound regret. And so I will be as tender as I can be as I talk about this. And I will remind you that God's grace is sufficient. You are not judged by the stack of obedience you've built up. You are judged by the grace of Jesus Christ that covers all things. And I will remind you that God can bless and redeem lives that have wandered crooked paths. But I also want you to know the calling of God, especially for those who still have a chance to follow it. The calling of God is that marriage would be permanent. We already saw this in Matthew 19. We could also look at a text like 1 Corinthians 7. To the married, I give this command. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Like Jesus does, Paul goes on to identify a couple situations in which a divorce is uh, a proper option. He says that if the permanence of your marriage has been broken, you are not bound by it. We don't have time to look at all the relevant texts, but we could summarize it in this way. If the permanence of a marriage has been broken by adultery, abandonment, or abuse, then you are unbound from your marriage. But if the permanence of marriage has not been broken in that way, Christians are called to work to maintain the permanence of marriage. Do we always succeed? No. Do we always show love and fellowship to those who are in the middle of a divorce or experiencing divorce? Absolutely. 
Do we recognize that the mercy of God is even sufficient for us if we have experienced divorce? Yes. Can this calling to maintain the permanence of marriage feel like a burden? Definitely. Right? When you feel like you're stuck in a mediocre marriage, and then you hear that the calling of God is to stay in that marriage, wouldn't it be nice to just give up, you know? This? And, and absolutely, our culture, what our culture encourages us to do is to say, you know, if a marriage isn't rosy, just get out of it fast and hope the next one works out. But God's calling is different. And when you encounter the calling of God on your life, I want to teach you to shift your attention from the burden to the blessing. So since the burden of permanence is obvious, you get stuck with somebody that you're annoyed by, what is the blessing? Is there a blessing of permanence? Well, for starters, the Bible teaches that a Christian marriage that stays permanent is a testimony to the grace of God and the power of forgiveness in the world. We know that the permanence of marriage is a blessing to children and that the impermanence of marriage leaves us wounded and creates insecurity for children. The other thing I would tell you is that a couple that is committed to the permanence of marriage, and I would just say, whatever your past experience of marriage has been, if you're married today, you could today commit, this marriage will be permanent. And when you are committed to the permanence of marriage, you get to take advantage to the power of your vows. Because in a permanent marriage, vows are a pow- promises are a powerful thing. Because every marriage gets hard. In fact, almost every marriage I know gets really hard. And if your promises are temporary, then when the marriage gets bad, you get out. And if that were the new rule, that whenever a marriage got bad, we gave up on it, there would be no marriages that last. There doesn't exist a marriage that never got hard. In that case, no child would ever have a stable home. No family would have multiple generations of stability. But if... The promises are meant to be permanent. And you're both committed to doing everything you can to maintain the permanence of your promises. You get this, like, cheat code for marriage. And it works like this. When your marriage gets hard or annoying or bad, you look at each other and you're like this. This marriage is the worst I don't want to be stuck in this marriage for 50 years, so we better fix it. You see how if if getting out of the marriage isn't even on the table, you have this whole new option that emerges. I don't want to be stuck in a miserable marriage for 50 years, so I'm going to go back to God's word, and I'm going to read that place where it says, submit yourselves one to another. I'll see if that'll help my marriage. I'm going to read that place where it tells wives to respect their husbands even when they don't deserve it. I'll see if that'll help my marriage. I'll read that place where it tells husbands to love their wives even if they didn't earn it. I'm going to try that. I'm going to see if that will help my marriage. I know so many couples who have saved their marriage based on this one motivating principle. 
They didn't want to be stuck in a miserable marriage their whole life, and they believed marriage was permanent, so they had every possible incentive to work to save their marriage. Because if you couldn't count on the permanence of marriage, well, you wouldn't do all that work. I can think of many times where in my anger I started to say something just across horrible to my wife. And I stopped myself based on this logic. I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying this is what worked. In the back of my head, I think, Ethan, if you say that, you're going to regret that till you're dead. <laughs> so I did not say it out of love for my wife. I not say it because I plan to be married to her forever. And I didn't want to regret what I'd said for the next 50 years. The myth is out there. You hear this myth. That if a marriage stays happy, it might end up being permanent. That is not true. Ask any couple that's managed to stay married 50 years. They will tell you, we didn't stay married because we stayed happy. They'll tell you about plenty of seasons where they were very, very not happy. In fact, what's true is just the opposite. Not that happy marriages stay permanent, but that permanent marriages are incentivized to work toward happiness, to work toward Love. You can look at any modern sociological survey you want, and what you'll find, that you'll find the same thing, that a committed marriage is a statistical predictor of sexual satisfaction, happiness, economic stability, mental health, and it's a blessing to their children. Does it happen every time? No. Plenty of people get stuck in bad marriages. There's brokenness in every human relationship. We are a broken people. But it is a predictor. Apparently, God's calling actually leads to goodness and blessing. Now, I must be careful. I know, I know that some marriages become so toxic and so damaging, or one or the other partner won't work for permanence, and divorce is the only option. I know that. So does Paul, and so does Jesus. They both give those explanations. I also know that God will be faithful to bless your family regardless of its situation. God doesn't just bless permanent marriages. God blesses all, everything we do, God works in it to bless us. God loves you and loves your family however it's arranged. I especially want to say if you are being abused, I am not asking you to stay and get hurt. You get help from the church or from a trusted friend. The Bible does not require you to stay in an abusive marriage. And I know that for many of us, me even talking about the permanence of marriage is so hard because you want to be married and you've never even had the chance. Or maybe you were married and it ended in divorce, and you've got so much regret, and you're hearing what I'm saying is condemnation. I promise you there is no condemnation in my words. You, you, you stand before God because of the love of Jesus, not because you managed your relational life perfectly. I certainly have tons of regret in my relational lives. I, my stance before God is based on Jesus, not on Ethan. I'll especially say, uh, for you who are single, I could preach a whole sermon on the virtue and wholeness of being a single person. You are not a second-class human. And if the church or if I have ever made you feel that way, I'm so sorry. That was a false gospel. That's not true. 
For those who have, who have experienced divorce and for, he, for whom hearing this is very painful, I'm so sorry. God restores, forgives, heals. Our God is the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. And you just keep going and keep going and keep going. I believe that God desires to work miracles of goodness in your life. And you always, at any time, can say, God, bring, help me see a path back to your calling. But for you who are married and you have not committed to permanence, I just want you to know you, this is the call of God. The wisdom of God is that you would work to maintain your vows. If the permanence has not been broken by adultery, abuse, or abandonment, the wisdom of God is that you would work to maintain your vows. This is not a word of condemnation. It is a calling to a path of blessing. As far as it depends on you, work to maintain the permanence of your marriage. Let's talk briefly about another part of this calling that might feel to you only like a burden, and that is the call to abstinence. No sex outside of marriage. Now again, the burden there is obvious. Every voice in our culture teaches us, have as much sex as you can with whoever sex you can. Sex is always a blessing. And God says, no, it isn't. It's only a blessing in this narrowly disciplined context. We could look back again at what we read in Corinthians, where Paul teaches that any sexual contact uh, is more than just a physical connection. It's a, it's a spiritual and a human connection. And that we are not meant to have multiple sexual partners and we are not meant to have any sexual partners outside of or before marriage. And this call feels like a burden. So what do we do? Well, we shift, right? We shift our attention. We say, okay, God, the burden of the call to abstinence is obvious. Tell me what the blessing is. This is in every ethical question. We go to God and say, God, help me see the blessing here. And what is the blessing? What blessing could be found by saying no to sex outside of marriage? Well, first of all, let me just say, for you who want to honor God with your lives, there is the blessing of just saying, God, I love you, I trust you, so I'll do it your way. Even if it never makes sense, you can say, this doesn't make sense to me, God. This seems like it's all a bummer, but you said it, and so I'll do it just as an honor to you. I'm going to obey you in this way. But in this case, if you study it for even five minutes, you'll discover that beyond the blessing of just giving God glory through obedience, with, there is so much practical blessing. Think of it this way. With every relationship you have, you're either going to break up and get married or get married. And in both cases, you'll be glad if you are abstinent. If you break up, you'll be glad because the Bible teaches that sex is more than physical. And casual hookups, I mean, you just do the research. Hookup culture leaves people depressed, anxious, and sexually dissatisfied. Even longer sexual relationships that are not marriages that end in a breakup are the emotional equivalent to a divorce. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that it's more than just a physical connection. What about if you marry the person? Many, I, I, I know many people who even, they, they would say, I'm a Christian, I'm trying to do my sex life God's way, but I'm, I'm going to marry that person, and so we're going to begin our sex life before we get married. 
Well, I would just say, if surveys are the kind of thing you care about, every long-term study shows that sex before marriage is a consistent predictor of divorce, sexual problems in marriage, and lower sexual satisfaction in marriage. Every long-term study that's been done. Multiple sexual partners lead to more abortion, more children growing up without access to their parents, higher rates of divorce, higher rates of sexual dissatisfaction. And complicated sexual histories get brought into marriage and they become challenges to our marriage. Now again, are these challenges addressed by the grace of God? Is God sufficient to heal and rebuild whole marriages regardless of what your sexual history is? Of course God is. Our God is powerful and mighty to forgive and heal and redeem. But there is blessing, both spiritual blessing and all kinds of practical sociological blessing to the calling of abstinence. Now, I don't want to make the mistakes of the purity culture of the 80s and imply that if you don't get everything right with sexual purity, that you're somehow damaged good or broken before God. That's not how our God works. If meaning you'd messed up, if that meant that God couldn't love you or use you, well, then I certainly wouldn't be your preacher. I'd just be out, I'd be done. My whole life only makes sense if the grace of God is bigger than my foolishness and my failure. And that's true for you. Maybe, Maybe let me conclude with a couple simple reflections. You, You may be wondering, in light of the calling of God and all the ways that we have walked a different path, you might wonder, does God still love me? Does God love families that look more complicated than this picture that Jesus paints? Does God bless homes that have marriages and divorces and remarriages and kids? And Absolutely. God loves you and God loves families of every infinite complexity. Go read the Bible. Look at David. Uh, David had, had wives and he had one wife. He killed her husband so he could marry the wife and And God doesn't just bless him. He blesses him to the generation after generation after generation after generation. Maybe you wonder about this church. Does this church love me even though my life hasn't looked like the calling we've been talking about? Absolutely. That's who we are too. We are every one of us people whose lives don't look like the calling of God. That's why we are a church built on grace. We are founded on grace. We are established in grace. Grace is the very blood in our veins. Without grace through us, we are a dead husk. You may wonder, am I welcome here if I disagree with something about the way I just explained this? Absolutely. Absolutely. You are loved and welcome here. Whether you agree, disagree, you're confused, you're, you're hurting, you're unsure, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You are loved, valued, wanted, and welcomed here because you are loved, valued, and welcomed by Christ. Maybe the question you wonder about is, what should I do with the calling of God? Well, for starters, you'll probably need to study it more. I've barely scratched the surface. There wasn't enough time to go into every detail and every text. 
But sure, in some situations, how we should respond to the calling of God is very clear. If you're in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, you should stop having sex. And then you should consider, should we get married or not? What is the next step for us? What does health and wholeness look like for us? That obedience will immediately give glory to God. And it will bless your life whether you marry that person or another or whether you never marry. But in so many other situations, there is so much complexity, you know? Um, For me to pretend like I can kind of give a prescription to all these situations, sitting up here on a stage with all our different lives and all their complexity, that would just be cruel. I would just commend you to this. God loves you and the word of God is for your blessing. So study the call of God. Meet with somebody here at the church, talk to a friend, and believe that if you will give God a chance, you can shift your attention from the burden to the blessing and find the grace and strength to follow the call of God. Mostly, though, you must anchor your life in grace. For it is God's grace that is our anchor and our hope. It is not our obedience. Your righteousness and status before God is not determined by how you have obeyed, but how you have trusted in Jesus Christ. No one perfectly obeys the call of God. You will not be the exception. You have not been the exception, and you will not be the exception going forward. So either your life is anchored in grace or your life is unanchored. So anchor your life in grace. Which brings me to my main point. The one with which I'll close. God loves you. The only reason that the moral teaching of God is even worth considering is because God loves you. God does not wait to love you until after you obey. God is not planning to love you a little more if you were to obey. God loves you now, completely and fully. God proved his love by sending Jesus to die on a cross. That was God's calling for Jesus. You may wonder, how did Jesus say yes to such a burdensome calling? Because he shifted his attention from the burden to the blessing. God's word says this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? The joy so great that Christ would accept the burden of a cross that he might see the joy. What was the joy? You were the joy. You were. The burden of the cross Christ carried for you so that you might be restored to God, so that you might approach God, not on the rubble that is the wreck I made of my life, but on the strong foundation that is the grace of Jesus Christ. And now because of what Jesus has done on the cross, in Jesus Christ, in him alone, your righteousness is complete. We're gonna share in just a minute the meal of communion together. If you uh, got the elements on the way in, great. If you need them now, though, there'll be ushers moving around the room. 
would love to give you. Just raise your hand. They'll give you the elements. Everyone who's trusting in Christ today is invited to this table. Here you will find bread and a cup drawing our attention to the slain body and the shed blood of Jesus. This is the new covenant that Christ has accomplished what we could not. And until your whole life is founded on the grace of Jesus, until you know that your righteousness is given to you by God, not accomplished by your acts, then honestly, I don't even want you to listen to all that moral stuff I talked about. Until you are grounded that your salvation comes from the grace of God, you are actually not ready to respond to God's call. You'll turn it back into legalism. You'll think that your failure means God doesn't love you again. It will sound for you like a law that condemns. But there is no condemnation. There is Christ. There is Christ who came for you and Christ who died for you and Christ who rose again and Christ who lives eternally. There is Christ who reigns over you and Christ who rescues you and Christ who forgives you and Christ who heals you and Christ who wants to lead you in a path of righteousness and blessing. There is a Christ who blesses the sinner and the first faltering steps of obedience. And there is Christ who is the one who will complete your journey of faithfulness when your own steps falter so that one day you will make your home eternally with God justified, rescued, redeemed, and saved not because you've got a stack of good works that proved you were worthy but because you have a Savior who proved that he was love. Let me pray for you now. Gracious God, oh, gracious God, meet us with your grace right now. I pray for those who need to hear your calling. I pray that they would only hear your calling through the music of your grace. And that anchored in your grace, we might, with faltering steps, begin to walk in obedience. This is our prayer today. Meet us at the table of grace right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.